This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. From about 15 years on up, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. This is Alyssa Carroll, and I am your host and the creator of at serial underscore killing on Instagram, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they display their famous vile and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on Glenn Rogers. But before I get into it, I just want to take a moment to thank Lori Nichols, Amanda Newman, John T., Julie Franson, and Caitlin for supporting the podcast. You guys are muchly appreciated. Glenn Rogers was born on July 15, 1962 in Hamilton, Ohio. And as usual, let's get into some history of that time. In 1962, we were in the midst of the space race. John Glenn became the first American to orbit the Earth, and he did orbit three times around, and the flight lasted around five hours. After, President Kennedy asked Congress for $531 million, which would be around $4.4 billion today to have the first man walk on the moon before the end of the decade. The year before, the United States backed a CIA-trained force of Cuban exiles to overthrow the Cuban regime, and this was known as the Bay of Pigs. In the beginning of 1962, President Kennedy ordered an embargo on all imported goods from Cuba including seafood, uh, fruits, vegetables, and, of course, their famous tobacco. So, the Cuban and Soviet governments got together and secretly began building missile bases in Cuba, capable of launching missiles far enough to cover most of the United States. That summer, the U.S. began to suspect this and confronted the Soviet Union, who stated the allegations were false. So the U.S. sent the Air Force over to take aerial photos of Cuba, of course confirming what they had suspected, even finding nuclear missiles installed in southern Cuba. Conflict ensues, Kennedy canceled the rest of his campaign trip and addressed the United States, 
stating that they were aware of the presence of missiles in Cuba. The U.S. then went to DEFCON 3, which is the, quote, defense readiness condition. The U.S. sent ships and stationed them 500 miles offshore to blockade Cuba. The Soviet Union, of course, notices this. The U.S. then goes to DEFCON 2, which brings the two powers together to meet about the impending, outright, horrific tensions and outcomes of how this could end. The Soviet Union stated that if President Kennedy announced that if the U.S. would agree to never invade Cuba, well, they would simply remove their missiles. This did lead to the de-escalation of the situation and relations chilled slightly. And speaking of President Kennedy, the Marilyn Monroe famously sang happy birthday to the then president on his birthday. This would be one of her last public appearances before she died of a huge air quotes, drug overdose, or mm -hmm, probable suicide. She was then considered one of the most beautiful women in the world, and it's pretty well known that she might have been having an affair with the president, and possibly his brother Bobby. Hmm. So James Meredith, a black college student, attempted to enroll at the University of Mississippi, resulting in riots that had to be contained and controlled by federal troops and U.S. Marshals. James was an Army veteran and had tried to enroll a few times before, but was always denied by Mississippi's then-governor. President Kennedy insisted the young man be allowed to enroll and sent U.S. Marshals to escort James to the school, and he did eventually earn his degree. Seattle's Space Needle was completed just in time for the 1962 World's Fair. Marvel's Spider-Man made his very first appearance in a comic book, and I know that's a sore subject right now. Brazil beat Czechoslovakia in the World Cup. The first Walmart discount store was opened by Sam Walton in Arkansas. Makes sense. But also, the first Kmart department store opened in Michigan. The United Nations passed a resolution condemning South Africa's racist apartheid policies. And finally, Algeria and Jamaica gained their independence from France and Great Britain. During this year, the Beatles released their single, Love Me Do. Andy Warhol painted his famous can of soup. And Joan Cusack, Demi Moore, and Jodie Foster were all born in 1962. So this was the atmosphere that Glenn was born into. And I do want to say that I got the majority of my source material from interviews with Glenn's actual siblings while they did interviews with the Discovery Channel. So I just want you to be aware of that. Glenn's parents were Claude and Edna Rogers. Claude Rogers was born in March 1924 in Lee County, Kentucky. 
His parents were Shelby and Mary Rogers. He had one older sister, and not long after Claude was born, the family moved to Hamilton, Ohio, where they had two more children after. His father, Glenn's grandfather, illegally made moonshine. Shelby was also a violently tempered man who once shoved a horse off of a cliff to its death because it wouldn't, quote, break to a saddle. Once Claude was grown, he joined the U.S. Army Air Corps and served in World War II. Now, Edna May Sears was born in March of 1931 in Hamilton, Ohio. She grew up, as her daughter called, quote, full gospel Pentecostal. Edna and her family would listen to gospel music on the radio, and she was brought up extremely strict. She had to wear very long skirts and no makeup whatsoever. She and her family went to church several days a week. Once Claude left the military, he came back home, and that's when he met Edna. Now, Edna told her children that she thought Claude was the most handsome man she had ever seen, and she was surprised that he had chosen her, but Edna was attractive as well. She had beautiful strawberry blonde red hair. The couple got married in April of 1948. Now, Claude was a hard drinker, and he carried on his family tradition of making moonshine. Edna was still a church-going woman, but Claude decided that his wife would not be going to church anymore. They began having children quickly, and they did the best that they could do. After having six children, they decided they didn't want to have any more. Back then, though, couples had to go in front of a judge to get permission to get sterilization surgery, like tubal ligation. But the judge said no, that Edna's life was not in any danger. So the next baby born was Glenn. It is reported that Glenn, as a small toddler, would just sit and rock back and forth, banging his head as hard as he could on things and never showing appropriate emotions. While he was still in diapers, his mother smacked him in the chest so hard he couldn't breathe and he actually passed out. His mother stated once that Glenn developed a rash as a toddler from playing in puddles of toxic waste, and that rash stayed with him his entire life. But we'll talk more about that rash later. Not long after, Claude lost his job due to his drinking and the family had to move to a smaller house as well as lie about how many children they actually had. Glenn was described as an innocent and happy baby to begin with, but the family was struggling terribly. They were so poor they got government assistance with food and ate oatmeal for every meal for long periods of time. At home, Glenn's father regularly beat his wife. Glenn's brother stated that while they didn't go to church, religion still found its way into their lives. 
Glenn and his siblings were once taken to what is called the Ceremony of the Sin Eaters, where his brother claims they watched a man eat food off of a dead body to cleanse the deceased of their sins. The people were holding snakes and speaking in tongues and preaching about demons and the devil. So the Rogers children took to stealing food from others and when they would get caught, the local police would take them to the station where they would actually be given a hot meal and attention. An actual photo exists of Glenn sitting on top of a police motorcycle and a nice policeman standing next to him. But mostly the kids didn't want to go home because home was a very scary place. With their father drinking like he did, along with that came his temper. Claude also enjoyed shooting guns at targets or at their own house, and at one point he even put the gun up to Edna's head in front of his children. After one particular day of drinking, Claude came home to see that the barn cat had had kittens. He got his gun and he killed each one of the kittens in front of his kids. The family didn't even celebrate birthdays. One day, he and one of his brothers were in the bathtub just splashing and having fun when their mother Edna came into the bathroom in a rage and held the boys' heads underwater for nearly too long. After that day, Glenn began to spiral downward. He was angry and vengeful. When Glenn was little, his father would have him drink beer until he was drunk, and so Glenn became dependent early. So what were the children to do? They busied themselves away from home, sneaking into other people's homes and stealing, and they got good at it. Glenn's older brother Clay used a very young Glenn to help him commit crimes because Clay was getting old enough that he knew Glenn wouldn't get into as much trouble if they got caught. But Glenn showed what you might call a natural ease and talent for crime. In Glenn's teen years, as his brothers grew up and moved on, he continued getting into trouble and was placed in a juvenile detention center. And it was not a good place. What was going on there actually made the papers one headline stated, quote, three ex-Tico men face inmate sex charges, unquote. Glenn had not escaped those assaults, and a violent hatred toward society was already brewing. He felt that no one wanted him around at home, and he was being abused at this facility. Now, once out of the first reform school, Glenn dropped out of school as a freshman. His IQ was thought to be about 76, which is quite low. But with some free time on his hands, he was getting bored. He decided to break into a locked trunk that his father kept hidden, and there he found nude pictures of his own mother, along with guns and bullets. Glenn was enraged. He attempted suicide, and when his mother was contacted, she simply directed them to put him back into reform school again. 
Not long after, he committed some petty crime and was indeed put back into the reform school. So this was Glenn's childhood. Needless to say, Glenn was doomed from the beginning. His grandfather had a penchant for violence, as did his own father. Alcoholism and violence were in his family history without a doubt. So let's start with the rocking back and forth as a toddler. According to parents.com, it is common for toddlers to rock back and forth rhythmically and bang their head on a wall as a way to unwind during times of, you know, normal levels of stress. But what is not normal is a toddler who displays this behavior all day long. This could be a sign that the child is in a very stressful or abusive environment under great distress, which we do know Glenn was in. It was also said that Glenn, when he was very young, didn't show emotions like what we think of as normal kids do. We don't have any specific examples of situations where we could see what happened and his supposed lack of emotion, but some of his early behavior does match up with documented psychopathic traits that a few rare children have. This of course is a controversial topic because some of the behaviors include narcissism and impulsiveness which we all know most children display normally. What experts look for are a combination of antisocial behaviors with an overlay of callous, unemotional traits. Something like these kids who often get into serious trouble at home and at school. The child will also show a predictable lack of guilt when caught doing something they know they aren't supposed to do. They may also show a marked lack of empathy across all situations and relationships. You might think that this is still somewhat normal for children. But for example, if you tell a small child that, say, you fell and hurt your hand, and you show them a band-aid, you tell them it made you cry, they will understand that pain, that it hurt, because band-aids are used to make, quote, boo-boos better etc etc so while we can't be sure that Glenn had childhood psychopathy it is at least an option now the rash that Glenn had is actually called cutaneous porphyria this is a predominantly inherited metabolic disorder that is caused by a lack of a specific enzyme and the overproduction of toxic enzymes now this is really an oversimplification, but you get the idea. There are two types of this condition. One deals more with the nervous system causing pain, autonomic instability, and psychosis. The other deals more with the skin. Photosensitive lesions erupt like blisters or a rash. They show up on the hands, the forearms, face, ears, and neck. It is very itchy, the skin swells and gets darker and thicker. And there are treatments, but they are expensive, and I highly doubt his family could have afforded them, even if they were willing to try, such as a form of dialysis to remove the excess toxins from the blood. 
the best prevention is mostly to stay out of the sun. So I hate to do it, but let's talk about the Pentecostal church. It is a form of Christianity that mainly focuses on the work of the Holy Spirit and the direct experience of the presence of God by the believer. The believer accepts Jesus as their Lord and Savior, but also being baptized in the Holy Spirit. This enables the believer to experience spiritual gifts such as, quote, speaking in tongues, shouting and clapping, and divine gifts such as healing or casting out demons. Most practitioners believe that the Bible is meant to be interpreted literally. Women are not allowed to wear pants of any kind, nor are they allowed to wear makeup and most jewelry. That women are to, quote, dress with modesty, decency, and propriety, unquote. And get this, in Appalachia, many of the Pentecostal churches believe in snake handling to show non-believers that God will keep them safe. Now, as for the ceremony of the Sin Eaters, that is a very real thing. I was surprised too, I know. It derives from supernatural beliefs that go back as early as the 1600s. Grieving family members of a deceased loved one would pay the village, quote, Sin Eater to get rid of any and all sins the dead had accumulated during their lifetime. Usually, a piece of bread was put on the dead person's chest or face. The bread would then absorb the sins from the body. Then the sin eater would eat the bread. While consuming, the sin eater would say a prayer, quote, I give easement and rest now to thee, dear man. Come not down the lanes or in our meadows, and for thy peace I pawn my own soul. Amen. Unquote. So Glenn and his brother witnessed this practice. And then there's the episode where Edna stormed into the bathroom when the boys were having their bath, obviously having fun, God forbid, and held their heads underwater until they nearly drown. Aside from the fact that it could have starved their brains of precious oxygen or even worse, drowned them, it's the violence Glenn experienced at the hands of his own mother, who happened to have reddish hair, that left a sort of stain in his mind. This is believed to have been the reason that he targeted mostly women with reddish hair. And then finally there is the sexual assaults that he endured while in a juvenile detention center as a teen. Oftentimes, just like women, men and teen boys feel shame and self-doubt. But boys will often think that they should have been, quote, strong enough to fend off their predator. Many suffer with anxiety and depression, PTSD, feeling on edge and unable to relax. They might question their own sexuality and it can make them display much more aggressive behaviors, or even be suicidal. Basically, we can take away from this the idea that really, without a miracle, Glenn had no real hope 
for a normal life. So let's get back into it. So once Glenn was released out of the juvenile detention center and returned home, his friends told him that a local girl that he had liked and sort of dated before he had been arrested was currently in the hospital. She had just had a baby and the hospital wouldn't release her because she was effectively homeless. Glenn went up there, he picked Debbie up and her newborn and brought them home to his family's house. Now, according to his siblings, Glenn absolutely loved Debbie and legally adopted her baby. He desperately wanted to turn his life around and give his new little family the life that he had never had. Glenn and Debbie married in 1980 and soon had a child of their own. But Glenn was an extremely jealous young man and he didn't trust Debbie, though she was doing nothing to encourage his behavior. If she didn't comply with his demands, then he physically abused her. Once, he convinced himself that she had cheated on him and he beat her so badly she had to be admitted into the hospital. In fact, he had kicked her in her groin area so violently that she suffered permanent damage internally and externally. But since he had seen that's how his father controlled his mother, he assumed that was just the proper course of action. One particular beating was so intense and so bad that the police actually got involved and they were going to arrest him. So Glenn fled to California and Debbie divorced him immediately. While in California in 1984, Glenn met and married a woman named Kathy and they quickly had a son together. But just as his first marriage, it ended due to his violence. Not long after this, his father Claude became ill and died. And around this same time in 1986, Glenn was still living hard, but had found a female companion in Shanda Price. They worked together to con people out of money but that relationship was short-lived. At one point, Glenn had injected beer into his veins and had to go to the hospital, where he openly admitted to the staff of his using cocaine. He was evaluated in the hospital and was transferred to a mental health facility. A report from that facility read, quote, Glenn is a mentally ill person subject to hospitalization by court order under Division B of Section 5122.01 of the Revised Code. This person represents a substantial risk of physical harm to himself as manifested by evidence of threats of or attempts at suicide or serious self-inflicted bodily harm." Unquote but then he was eventually released, of course. So his father's death had hit him particularly hard and he began using drugs and spending more time in jail. When he would go home to Hamilton to visit his family, he was noticeably more violent. There is a story that he found out that one of his sisters was going to be evicted from her home because she didn't have the money for her rent. 
So Glenn went to a gas station and robbed it at knife point, which of course made the local papers, but he did give that money to his sister. So Glenn, who was now pretty heavily on drugs, decided he could get out of trouble with the police if he, when caught, gave up the names of people above him in the drug trade. The police were inadvertently teaching him techniques that would help him be a better criminal. And he was able to get away with this for about 10 years. Then in early 1992, Glenn had figured out another way to make money. He became a pimp for several women. And Glenn was a winner both ways. He received free sex and he made money. One of his prostitutes, a redhead named Carrie Gaskins, rode off in a taxi. The next day, her 12-year-old daughter found her mutilated body in their house. Her torso had been repeatedly slashed with a knife and her throat had been slit. Also in 1992, 30-year-old Glenn was back living in Hamilton with a new girlfriend in a trailer house. He had gone and picked up his favorite brother from being released from jail and took him back to his trailer where he was visibly agitated saying he was going to stab and kill his girlfriend now his brother stepped in and demanded that they leave the house and as they drove away glenn told his brother quote i should have just killed her i've done about 50 so far unquote but his brother didn't believe him so Glenn and Clay headed south from Ohio down to Florida, committing robbery during the entire trip, and they often took road trips. They stopped off in Georgia and got a room once. Clay drank until he passed out, and when he woke up, he saw Glenn in the room covered in blood, his clothes torn and soaked with blood as well. Glenn cleaned himself up and the brothers eventually made their way back up north home to Hamilton. Now that road trip in particular scared his brother straight. Clay got a job and he settled down. Glenn, not so much. According to his brother, Glenn took to killing women, putting their bodies in the trunk of his car then driving to his brother's place to say he wanted his help to get rid of the body, to which his brother refused. Clay said he did not know what to do. He wanted to call the police, but at the same time, this was his brother, and he felt responsible as if he had taught him to be this way. In December 1993, the decomposed body of a 16-year-old Hamilton girl, Kelly Ann Camargo, was found two weeks after she was last seen leaving a biker bar in a taxi. She had been violently stabbed and left in some nearby woods to die. During this time, Glenn states he was experiencing blackouts, some lasting as long as four days. During that particular blackout, he had been living and working as a house painter in Los Angeles, and when he woke up, he was miraculously in a Cincinnati airport. Now this is where it gets interesting, guys. We're going to take a bit of a left turn, but stick with me. You'll appreciate it. 
So as I stated, Glenn was working as a house painter in Los Angeles, as well as helping clean up after a large earthquake that had happened there recently. Supposedly, Glenn decided to visit his family back home, even though he was wanted for questioning in a homicide. One of his sisters was barbecuing and Glenn got to talking to her and he told her that he had been hanging out with this beautiful woman named Nicole. He said he had done some work for her in her house and that they had gotten along so well that they had gone out for drinks together. He told his sister that she was married to, quote, some black football player, unquote, as Glenn didn't follow sports but his sister didn't think much of it. After his visit, he did go back to Los Angeles. Soon after, Glenn called his brother Clay and said he was partying with Nicole Brown Simpson, that she was rich and he was going to, quote, take her down. Not long after, Nicole and Ronald Goldman were murdered. Did he murder them? Was it OJ? Just some food for thought. So it was no real secret that Glenn was drawn to redheads. There was an incident with a 27-year-old redhead, Cora McKnight. Glenn had beaten her several times, once even breaking her arm. During this particular attack, she grabbed a knife and stabbed him in the elbow, prompting another emergency room visit. In 1995, Glenn met Linda D. Price, yet another redhead, at a state fair in Jackson, Mississippi. They moved in together quickly, but then, after not hearing from her for a week, her family went to the apartment and found her mutilated body in the bathtub. Glenn had actually called his sister on the phone the night of the murder And while spanking Linda Price's naked dead body, he said that he had killed her and that there were many more before her. His sister was shocked, but she refused to believe that. Later that same year, Glenn met Tina Cribbs in a bar in Florida where he had traveled to and bought her a drink. She was found stabbed to death in a motel room. After the murder, Rogers fled the scene in Cribbs' vehicle and headed to Louisiana. Glenn then murdered another woman he had picked up at a bar. Andy Sutton was discovered on her punctured waterbed with stab wounds by her own roommate. Glenn then left Louisiana and headed to Kentucky. Now, aware of his past and being actually scared of him, His brother and family members called the police, and that ultimately ended with a high-speed car chase that ended in Waco, Kentucky. When the police confronted him with the fact that they had evidence to show he had murdered five people, Glenn scoffed and remarked that the number was much closer to 70. So he was arrested and, of course, had a trial, and he was sentenced to death. He was scheduled to be put to death on Valentine's Day in 1999, but he has appealed constantly and is still sitting on death row today. So that's his whole story. 
He was later diagnosed with chronic psychotic disturbance, which causes abnormal thinking and perceptions. They lose touch with reality and using drugs and or alcohol generally aggravate the symptoms. I truly believe that again, Glenn had no chance. Born from a bloodline of violence and criminal activity, then trained in abuse and aggression, what other possible outcome could he have had? But tell me, what do you think? Leave me a comment on Instagram at serial underscore killing or YouTube under the same name as this podcast. You can visit my website at serialkilling.squarespace.com, which is always under construction, I know, I know. And also, consider sponsoring the podcast. It takes a lot of hours and a lot of work to do this, but I love it. And also, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate each and every one of you, because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me. Have a great day. Music by Kevin MacLeod on Incompetech.com.